Well, good morning again, everyone. We are continuing our study through the book of First Peter. We are in chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. First Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25 this morning. Peter's writing, beginning in verse 18, we read, Servants... Be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what, is credit, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you are like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The time of my study this morning is submitting to submission. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning to be able to hold in our laps, Lord, your word that you desire to speak to our hearts from. And so, Lord, we pray that we would have open ears to receive all that you have for us this morning. We pray your blessing upon our time together, Lord. We also pray if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to surrender their hearts to you completely. Lord, to be born again, Lord, they've yet to be born again. Would you touch their heart, especially this morning, that they would come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. story I found of a little boy that was playing with a very expensive vase. He put his hand to, into it, but he couldn't pull it out. Now, his father, you know, tried his best to get the little boy's hand out. And, and because it was an expensive vase, he really didn't want to break it, but he couldn't get it out either. But just when I thought, man, there's no other way to do this but, but to break the vase, he says, okay, to his little boy, he says, okay, one more time. Try to hold your fingers out like this and see if I do it, and then, then pull your hand out, see if we can get it. To the astonishment uh, of, the, of the little fellow said, oh, no, Dad, I couldn't pull my fingers out like that because if I did, I would drop my dime. <laughs> He's holding on to that, doesn't want to let go. Submission. It's not a popular topic in our society today. We want what we want, and we don't want anyone telling us otherwise. And everything in our culture screams at us to do what we want, the way we want it, how we want it, any way we want it. We don't want to live under the authority that's there. Uh, You know, I I think it's uh, Burger King. They had their slogan, have it your way. Uh, I've heard that after 40 years, they've changed it now to, to be your way, to do whatever you want type of thing. You know, advertisers know how to feed into this selfishness in us, especially at Christmas time. You see, have you noticed the Christmas car commercials that come out? You know, they have the, the, this little kid running around this $60,000 Lexus, 
and, 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 you know, hugging it and kissing it and, 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 you know, just suddenly the kid turns into an adult. And it says something about bringing out your inner child at Christmas. Like your husband or your wife is going to go out and buy you a $60,000 car for Christmas morning. They know that that wouldn't happen. But that's not the point of the commercial. The point is to get you to think that if you buy this new car, you will have this incredible joy like you did at Christmas time when you were a kid and you opened your presents. Because advertisers know if they can get people to want something they don't really need bad enough, they'll go out and buy it. But for, the, for us as believers, the real question becomes not what I want, but what does God want for me? What does God have for my life? And a part of the answer is that God wants it, what God wants is, is, is submission. Surrendering our wills. Surrendering our ways. He wants our desires to, to, to be God's author, under God's authority in our lives. In fact, the Bible teaches we're no longer to live for ourselves, but now we're to live for God. Paul wrote this in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I like that K.P. Johannan has a book out called Godliness Through Submission. And he wrote this. Submission to God's delegated authority is one of the most wholesome and liberating truths ever given to us by God. It affects our lives positively at every level. This truth ever remains hidden for most of us because Satan has taken this concept and twisted it into a negative term. Granted, submission may not be easy on our flesh, but the benefit that we will receive far outweighs the struggles involved. In other words, when we die to our pride and submit to God's authority, the benefits will follow. Jesus put it this way in John 12:24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. You see, our passage this morning, Peter's been showing us how to live our lives before an unbelieving world in an honorable way. And he's been talking about submission and talking about doing that in several ways. For example, number one, the relationship of the Christian to the government, as we saw last week, is to be, uh, is to submit, to be in subjection to those that have authority over us, to be good citizens. Number two, we're told to submit socially. That's what we're going to look at today between the employee and the employer, or in this case, the ancient slave and his master. The next week, just giving you a heads up, we'll look at a wife submitting to the unbelieving husband. So your wife should go, no, man, I'm not going to go to that one. But this morning, we're going to look at three things if you're taking notes. What it means to be a submissive servant, number one, a submissive savior to look at, and a submissive sheep. Three points this morning. Number one, a submissive servant. Look at verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Now, as believers, we are all servants of Jesus Christ. That means that we've been bought with the price. We belong to God. In fact, that's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.20. You were bought with the price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. You belong to God. So we need to glorify the Lord. Jesus tells us in Mark 9.35, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. You know, the night before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus set a pattern for his disciples by assuming the role of a servant and washing his disciples' feet. And all throughout Scripture, we see words like obey and yield and submit. Why? Because as servants of the Lord, that's what a servant does. That's what you do. The Lord desires us to adopt the attitude of humility and submission. Peter says in verse 18, servants, be submissive. Now we know that this word servant actually means 
translated slaves. Now let me say right off the bat that there's nothing good about slavery whatsoever. But we need to understand that slavery had a huge role in the Roman Empire and the time that, that Peter had penned this letter. And the kind of slavery back then was much different than the kind that we think about today. The slaves at that time, yes, they did the menial tasks of cleaning the house and, and serving the food. And, and, but many of the slaves back then, they were doctors, they were, they were teachers, they were musicians, they were actors, they were secretaries. They were all slaves. Basically, anyone who was not of, of some political or royal descent was a slave. And as slaves, the masters could treat them however they wanted to, however they pleased, because in Roman law, a slave was not a person but a thing. They had no, uh, no legal rights whatsoever. In fact, historians tell us that in the Roman Empire, at the time of this writing, there were as many as 60 million slaves. Now, some people go, oh, wait a minute, there wasn't 60 million people in the population registered in Roman at, at that time. Well, the answer is simple. Slaves were not considered to be people. So they weren't even counted in a, a part of the population. In fact, according to Roman law, the only difference between a slave and a beast or a farmyard cat was that a slave happened to be able to speak. Aristotle wrote this, There can be no friendship nor justice towards inanimate things, indeed not even towards a horse or an ox, not yet towards a slave as a slave, for master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Now, thankfully, we don't have slavery today. However, we do have employees and employers. And so I believe, Peter, we can apply that to what Peter's talking about this morning. I think in our society, some employers can look at employees in the same way as just some tool on the assembly line. Bosses that are demanding productivity that's impossible to meet. And the other end of that is that there are employees who need to stop being lazy and just get back to work. Same problems that existed back then, in Peter's time, exist today. See, the problem back then were between the slaves and the masters. The slaves and the masters, they were coming to Christ. They were being born again. So now all of a sudden, the relationship is changing a little bit. Now that the slave and the master, I mean, they might gather together at the same house for fellowship and, and Bible study, and they would worship together, they would share in communion together, like we're going to do this morning. They would have a great Sunday together, but then Monday morning, it was weird because it was back to that slave-master relationship. In fact, some slaves could actually be the pastor on Sunday and the servant on Monday. Listen, that creates some problems. Listen, what Peter is dealing with then still happens today. I read of a, an elder in a church that his Christian boss also went to. They went to the same church. And the elder had to correct his boss on a certain sin issue. And when he did, within days, the elder was fired from his job. job that he had for some 15 years. So we can see how it can be a problem between the relationship of the slave and the master when both of them are saved. There would be that tendency of the Christian slave to take advantage of his master, perhaps, and not work so hard. Or the master to demand more uh, of him because he's a fellow Christian. So that was, with that, Peter says, when it comes to slaves and masters in verse 18, Peter says, Slaves, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Listen, if you have a good and gentle boss, you are blessed. But that's not always the case. Some can be quite harsh. Either way, Peter says, be submissive. This word for submissive is very graphic. It means to rank yourself under someone else in order to lift them up and build them up. Let me repeat that. It means to rank yourself under someone else in order to lift them up and build them up. 
And that can be hard sometimes, can it? Because the natural tendency of the slave who was a believer would have been to see himself as better than the unbelieving master. And that could cause the slave to have this rebellious attitude. Well, I don't have to take this. Doesn't he know who I am? You know, there'd be this conflict. And there would even be more so the attitude if the slave owner happened to be harsh. That word for harsh there in verse 18, it's an interesting one. It means one who is crooked or bent. So you have a crooked, bent boss making your life miserable. Listen, there are a lot of people out there that are crooked and are all bent up, not just bosses. They're really twisted and wound up like a pretzel and bent with the stress and the pressures of life. But a boss like that can be especially cruel. I read of a poll that was taken that that said that 75% of employees said that their boss is the worst and most stressful part of their job. And they gave a few bad examples. Uh, This one, uh, cut a peach wrong, one boss thinks that justifies a punch in the face. I read a story about a boss that did not allow an employee off for a funeral leave when his father passed away. The boss said, "We we need you now, what difference does it make to him? Another story about a boss that made anyone late to a meeting stand in the corner for the entire time and had others who said anything particularly stupid stand on the chair or on the table. I mean, can you imagine that? Get in the corner and and stand. Get on the table. Now, now, understand, I'm not saying that you have to submit to some boss punching you in the face. If if they're going to do personal physical harm to you or, or sexual harassment, you don't stand for it. I hear of all the Holly weird elite now that, that have been exposed for sexual harassment by these victims, uh, you know, uh, they finally said we're not going to stand for it anymore. I say it's about time. It's about time. They should have come forward a long time ago to stop these deviates. But when it comes to your boss at work, they may have an irritating personality. Maybe they even have an irritating voice. You just can't stand to hear them. Oh, you know, it's a boss. They may be on some ego trip. Peter tells us through God's word that we're to treat our bosses with submission and with all fear. Listen, just because your boss might be a jerk doesn't mean that I get to be a jerk back to him. Doesn't mean that, that I don't have to work hard. Doesn't mean I, I don't need to treat him without her without respect. In fact, Peter says, place yourself under, under that person to lift them higher. Because the attitude of a servant says, what can I do for someone else? How can I help them? How can I lift them up? In other words, you're to be to submission to them, to him or her, as long as he or she is not asking you to do, which is clear, do something that is clearly unscriptural or is clearly sin. Because that word for submission here is, has the idea of freedom of choice. It's, it's subjecting yourself. It's something you do voluntarily. Not because you, you feel like your boss is a great person because you think you'll get a promotion. If you do, you do because of your testimony. You do because of your love for Jesus Christ. You want to have a good testimony. You want to be a good example. I've known Christian employers who would not hire a Christian because they've had too many bad experiences. All oh, these Christians, you know, they, they talk instead of work or, or they're always late and they give some excuse. Well, you know, I, just, I was sharing with someone or I had to read my Bible and God did something. You know, no. See, we can actually be a bad witness at work in the things that we do. But the reality is when a person is truly born again, their Christianity should produce a new attitude towards work whether their boss is a Christian or not. Paul said it well in Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we're to do this for the glory of God. We're to be submissive servants. Why? Look at verse 19 and 20. For this is commendable. 
If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. I read of a story about a woman's husband who had been slipping in and out of a coma for several months, yet she stayed by his bedside every single day. One day, when he came to, he motioned for her to come near her. As she sat by him, he whispered, eyes full of tears, You know what? You've been with me all through the bad times. When I got fired, you were there to support me. When my business failed, you were there. When we lost the house, you stayed right there. When my health started failing, you were still by my side. You know what? What, dear? She gently asked, smiling as her heart began to fill with warmth. He says to her, I think you're bad luck. Listen, Peter here balances out what it means to be a servant and what it means to suffer. Granted, just because we've given our life to Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean that there'll be no more suffering, no more pain in this life. Definitely in the next life, there's going to be no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears because Jesus promised it. But Peter says when you work in submission to your master or your boss, even though it causes you much grief and suffering, Peter says in verse 20, if you endure in this, it's commendable before God. That word commendable means to find favor or it's acceptable to God. God looks on you in a favorable way when you're harassed, mistreated, but you handle your words and your actions with grace and respect. God's going to give you more grace than to keep going when, you, when you're under this pressure. And then Peter gives an example here. You know, I mean, he's got a servant. He's trying to serve his master well, but for some reason his master is just being a real jerk to him, purposely treating him, but the servant keeps taking it and taking it. Peter says, God's word says that this servant's going to find favor from God, blessings from the Lord. But, he adds a, a, a but here in verse 20, what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? Now, this word for beaten, I mean, it means to be struck with the fists. And that was often the treatment of slaves during Peter's day. If a slave would steal or lie or become rebellious and refuse to work, his master might take him out and give him a real going over with his fist. And Peter is saying, if you've been beaten for any such fault and you take it patiently, what have you got to brag about? The beating was your own fault. God is not going to commend you for your patience in a case like that. Listen, the same way. If you're lying at work or cheating or stealing from your company and you get fired or you get, get harassed or you get written up, if you're wasting time by taking extended lunches or cruising the Internet when you should be working and the boss docks your pay or fires you, you have no room to say, oh, that's not fair, I'm being mistreated, oh, I'm being persecuted for righteousness. No, you don't. You're getting exactly what you deserve. So learn from it, apologize to your boss, and get back to work. Peter says, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Why? Because our natural reaction is to want to strike back when we have been treated unjustly. Jesus put it this way, Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I like what Pastor John Stott, Stott gives uh, this exhortation. He says this, People are logical, unreasonable, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness makes you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. 
The biggest men with the biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest men with the smallest minds. Think big anyway. People favor underdogs but follow only top dogs. Fight for the few underdogs anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help and may attack you if you do help them. Help them anyway. Give the world the best you have and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you have anyway. Peter says this is commendable before God. Now this brings us to our second point, a submissive Savior. We're to be submissive servants because we have an example in our submissive Savior. Look at verses 21 through 23. Peter says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. This Greek word for example in verse 21 is very vivid. It, it literally means to, to write under. It carries with it the idea of like when you were a child and you're learning the alphabet and they had the, the, all the dots of the letters out there and you'd take your pencil and you'd follow the dots to create the letters in the outline. And so uh, the words here is, is that you should follow his steps that has the idea that as Jesus walked ahead of you, then, then you put your feet in his steps. You're following where he goes. Kind of like you're in the snow when you were a kid and your parents would walk in the snow. You try and follow in their steps in the snow as well. So as you walk along, Jesus is our example. And we closely follow his footsteps to see how we should respond when it comes to being a servant and suffering. Now I want to point out a couple of things that Jesus didn't do in being an example to us as a submissive Savior, and three, th- three things that he did do. First, a couple of things that he didn't do. Look at verse 23 again. When he was reviled, did not revile in return. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he was being reviled, especially by the religious leaders. That word for revile, revile is very inclusive. Vine's Dictionary defines it as sinful speech. It goes on to define it as all kinds of evil talk. It's a brawler, a busybody, a complainer, coarse jesting, murmuring, tattling, secrets, whisperings, lying to someone or defaming a person's character is the sin of reviling. It's also going to be used in profanity and blasphemy. And we read, our Lord was reviled, yet he did not revile in return. Man, that's something that we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our life to accomplish in our lives. Why? Because of our pride. When someone says something wrong about you or makes up stories about you against your character, our first reaction, our fleshly reaction is to revile back. They hit him with bolt barrels. Oh, yeah. Well, let me just, and we just spew it out before them. It's human nature. It's human nature that, that, that has to be restrained and brought in and say no to that because it's our, our old human nature that wants to fight back. True story. I read that a man created a product called Revenge, selling it for $3.99. He was just sick and tired of smokers blowing secondhand smoke into his face. He decided, I'm going to create a little aerosol pocket-sized can called Revenge that gives smokers a dose of their own medicine, bad air. This foul-smelling disinfectant irritates their nose and their eyes, and he carried it with him, carries it with him, sells it, called Revenge. The sad thing is some of you guys are writing that down. You're going to Google it when we get out of service. Revenge, that's it. Listen, that was a lesson Peter, the author of this letter, had to learn. Remember when he walked up to to Jesus and and said, Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Peter thought he was really going for it. Man, 
You know, seven times, not just one or two, seven times. I mean, he's thinking he was generous. I mean, could you imagine? Say, I come down from up here and I punch one of you guys in the face and say, I'm sorry, and I'm just, just a crazy thing. You say, you know, would you forgive me? You might the first time. Then I turn around and do it again the second time. Would you, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know what's come over me. Well, you're nuts, that's what's come over you. Would you forgive me? Maybe the second time. But if I did that three, four, five, six, seven times, I think you'd have a hard time. So when Peter says seven times, he's feeling pretty good about himself. And then Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, that's not to be an exact count. That's not, okay, 490 times. And 491, then you're going to get it. No, no. <laughs> Peter's question was the issue. How many times do I let things happen and forgive before I start fighting back? Listen, forgiveness is, is easy to preach on. It's easy to listen to in a sermon, but trying to live it out on the street, that's the difficulty. Author Frederick Buchner put it this way. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to savor the last toothsome morsel is in many ways a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Listen, Jesus gave us an example to follow by not reviling back when he was reviled. And he was reviled. Remember the people shouting at him from the cross? Oh, he saved himself. You know, why does he save others? Why does he save himself? If you're really the son of God, come down from that cross. I think if you or I were put in that situation, I would say, I'll come down from the cross and you're going to be up there right away. And we just make the switch like that. But Jesus gave us that, that example of submission, willingly going to the cross. And, and let me say, willingly uh, staying there on the cross. It's been said that our sin put Jesus on the cross, but it was his love for us that kept him there. Look at the second thing that Jesus didn't do in verse 23. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Oh, we don't do that, do we? When we suffer, we want to threaten. If you don't stop doing this, then I will. And you can fill in the blanks. If you don't stop talking to me that way, then I'm going to leave you. I want a divorce. If you don't stop treating me this way, then I'm going to sue you. Jesus didn't do that. Now, what did Jesus do? Three things. First, Jesus in verse 22, it says, committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. So first of all, we know Jesus was sinless. When our Lord Jesus Christ was on this earth, he suffered two kinds of suffering. He suffered as a human being being down here when he became a man suffering for righteousness' sake. But he also suffered the sins of the world placed upon him because he was sinless. Second Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now his suffering for the sins of the world is not an example for us to follow, but it's our redemption. It's something we believe. It's something we accept. But we can by no means imitate it. Jesus is the only one who never ever committed any sin. But with that, with that said, when it comes to being reviled or when we suffer for doing good, we're not to sin by reviling back or let deceit be in our mouths through threats. We're, we're to do the right thing. What's the right thing? Don't sin. Don't give in to your flesh. But more than that, the second thing we can do that Jesus did is in verse 23. Number two, he committed himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, he placed the whole situation, his whole cause, his whole interest into the hands of his, of his Father. Even when people wronged Jesus, he knew that his Father would do right. You know what that verse commit means in verse 23? It means to let it go. 
Let it go. Let it go, Indiana. If you watch Indiana Jones movies or let it go, let it go. You know, don't hold on to it anymore. That's, you know, those of you that watch Frozen, another line from a movie. All that to say, if someone has wronged you, let it go. Let it go. You commit it to the Lord. You turn it over to him. You drop it off and you let it go. You confidently rest in God's ability to handle the hurt that's been done to you. So let it go. I can't tell you how important this is for us to place our case, our cause, our interests, the situation, our circumstances, where we've been wronged and hurt by people. We need to place them into the hands of the Lord to give them over to the Lord. Instead of going bitter towards people and instead of getting all uptight and losing our heads, we need to cast all our cares on Him because He cares for us. Listen, anyone can fight back, but it takes a spirit-filled Christian to submit and let God fight his battles for him. I read an article about a man in Tokyo, Japan, who was arrested because he had been so upset because he was denied entrance into a college for his graduate degree program 14 years earlier. And so that every night for 14 years, between the hours of 8 p.m. and 2 a.m., he made harassing phone calls to the school. He would leave on the answering machine of the professor that he thought was the one responsible for not letting him get into the program. Fourteen years of annoying phone, annoying phone calls. More than 50,000 phone calls. Dude, let it go. <laughs> I mean, right? Here's my point. Retaliation costs. Righteousness pays rich dividends like being able to sleep at night and not staying up till 2 in the morning making stupid phone calls. Think about how many relationships get torn apart by anger and holding on to that grudge. Oh, I got my cool little grudge. I'm taking my grudge home and I'm going to nurse it and feed it and pet it. No, let it go. Commit it to the Lord. The number three, what did Jesus do? He saw the big picture. He saw the big picture. Jesus saw the purpose of his suffering was to bring salvation. Look at verse 24. Who himself bore sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes... You were healed. Now let's clear, clear up just a, a, a little misconception within this verse here before we comment on it. Peter calls the cross uh, the tree. The Greek word for the tree that he uses is exlon, or exlon, which means an object made of wood. Peter's talking about the cross of Calvary, which our Lord was crucified upon. He's using the broader word because he's referencing back to Deuteronomy 21, uh, verses 22 through 23. And now you read that the Jews did not practice crucifixion. If a victim was a special evil, they hung the dead body on a tree as a mark of shame. So it's a reminder to us that Jesus' death was especially shameful. But what Peter is saying here is that Jesus saw the big picture. He knew that he would be taking your place there on the cross of Calvary, that he would be your substitute, my substitute. He bore your sins in his body to give you his righteousness. The exchange for, for sin, for his righteousness, it's the gospel in a nutshell. Now, once you're saved, you have died to sins and now you can live for, for righteousness. Died to sins means sins no longer has ruled over your life. You have the power to say no to sin and instead live a manner that's pleasing to God. So what Peter is saying is by saying no to sin, it can ultimately lead your boss, your employer, your master into a relationship with Jesus Christ realizing that there are higher things at stake than our rights. You may be in that place at your work just for such a time as this, for, for you to be that example that through, your, through, through what God's done in your life, your boss can come to know the Lord Jesus. Or maybe God has you that place in, in, in your life there that your example that the harsh treatment of workers would stop. 
See, we need, under, we need to understand that the stakes are much higher than our own rights. There's a bigger picture that we need to consider. The stakes are the salvation of co-workers, the salvation of your boss. So instead of being all bummed out when you go back to work tomorrow, think that, okay, this is my place of ministry. It's your mission field. So our three points, submissive servants, number one. Number two, we're to follow the example of our submissive Savior. And finally, our third point, submissive sheep. Look at verse 25. For you are like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now we know, we've looked at this before, sheep are not very bright animals. They have no natural defense system to protect themselves. You've never heard of killer sheep, you know, and, you know, it's not out there. A sheep without a shepherd will wander aimlessly and can get themselves in all kinds of trouble. Now you kind of understand why the Lord likens us to sheep. He saw you when you were going astray, when you, when you were bent and crooked yourself because of sin, and yet he had compassion. He saw you as a sheep without a shepherd. And if you're not a Christian this morning, that's still how he sees you, going astray, wandering aimlessly throughout this life. But to those that believe he's our good shepherd, he's my shepherd. A shepherd is one who cares for the sheep and loves the sheep and protects the sheep and leads the sheep. And if a sheep is tired or injured, the shepherd would carry them. Every need that the sheep had, the shepherd would meet it. You know, the term shepherd is one of the, the, the oldest descriptions of God in Scripture. One of the best loved Psalms of David. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Or, or, or Isaiah, he understood the, the role of a shepherd as well, that God is our shepherd. Isaiah 40, 11, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Psalm 100, verse 3, know the Lord, he is God. He, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. How can we make it in this world that is increasingly getting worse and worse and worse? No problem. We have a shepherd, a good shepherd. One who's watching out for me. One who's leading me, who supplies all of my needs, who will help me make it through. So we have nothing to fear. We can submit to him and his authority knowing that he's going to work everything together for our good and his glory. And in those times when I can't take another step, He is there in His grace to carry me that extra mile to get me through that difficult situation. You see, Jesus as a good shepherd is our enabler. He says, He is, as Peter says in verse 25, the overseer of my soul. Underline that, circle that. I love that phrase. Something beautiful about that, the phrase overseer of our souls. It implies that the soul is in the special care of the Savior. That it's the object of his special interest and that, that has a great value. That my soul is the object of his special guardianship and that he will not be unfaithful to the, to, to the trust placed in him. I mean, there's nothing safer than the human soul when it's committed in faith to Jesus Christ. Paul put it this way in 2 Timothy 1.12. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Why? Because he's the shepherd, the overseer of our soul. He's the guardian of our souls. He loves us. He cares for us. In his power, he protects us, and in his wisdom, he guides us in the right way. What's our job as dumb sheep? Submit our hearts and lives to him. Serving Him fully, being a servant to those around us. 
You know, we know this. We know it's true. People can be stupid. And people can do stupid things. Amen, right? They can be stupid. They can do nasty, hurtful things, right? That's precisely why they need to be forgiven. Think about how Jesus was patient with you. He was definitely patient with me. Give people a chance. Be patient with them. See, they're running away from God. They need to see God in action in your life. They need to see the God that we love by our actions and by our words and by our work ethic and the way we respect and treat our bosses at work or or your employees. I want to close with this story and we'll enter into a time of communion. Uh, Bruce Thileman, who is the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, told of a conversation with a member of his church who said, your preachers talk a lot about do unto others, but when you get right down to it, it comes to basin theology. Well, the pastor asked, well, well, what is basin theology? The layman said, remember what Pilate did when he, when he had a chance to acquit Jesus? He called for a basin and washed his hands of the whole thing. But Jesus, the night before his death, called for a basin and proceeded to wash the defeat of the disciples. It all comes down to basin theology. Which one will you use? See, the one thing that should motivate us to submission and to be that servant is love. The more you see the servant that Jesus was, the more you'll love him. And the more you love him, the more you're going to want to serve him. And the way that you serve him is through serving others. Could there be a more perfect picture of a servant than found in Philippians 2, verse 5 and 8? Let me read it to you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. I mean, could there be anything more beautiful than the fact that Christ, though he was he himself God, he humbled himself so we could be saved for our redemption. The one who is utter fullness, emptied himself out for our sake. He came and lived a, a sinless life, a, a life modeled, that modeled submission, a life that returned, that returned us to a full communion with God. There's nothing more beautiful than this, this true submission. As we close this morning, submission is looked down upon today, and yet if Jesus did not submit to the Father, where would we be today? Still lost in our sin and our trespasses. No way out. But he did submit to the will of the Father and completed the work that he was sent to do. So may we follow his example as a servant, submitting our lives to the Father and to those in authority over us, humbling ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift us up by our actions. Just maybe, just maybe, a soul might be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you, Lord, that we can now enter into this place of communion. Lord, really remembering the sacrifice that you made upon the cross for each one of us this morning. That you freely, Lord, submitted yourself to the cross. You submitted yourself to to the hands of men that would nail you to the cross. And you did it all for us. We just read, Lord, this morning, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Lord, we understand what you did upon the cross was for us, and the stripes and the beatings that you took was for us to heal us, Lord, to heal us of our sin, and to to bring communion back with our Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you so much for that. And now as we enter into this time of communion, Lord, it's a time of looking back 
and remembering just what you did for us. Lord, help us to not take it for granted. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.